And so I'm thinking about the future. What does the future hold for our church? What kind of ministries are we going to do together? Start thinking about the future for my life. Now that vaccines are squared away, what can we go do that we haven't been able to do this past year? And maybe you're like me. Maybe you have in your mind the wonderful post-COVID you. How are things going to be different after this year-long break than they were before? Uh, the question that I want to put to you today is, from today until the day you die, what kind of life are you going to live? What kind of life are you going to live? This morning, I want to show you the life you should live. Really, over the next four weeks, I want to show you the kind of life you should live. It's a life that comes to us by sort of a counterintuitive way, not the kind of way you would have suspected, not by hard work or magical fairy dust sprinkled on your wildest hopes and dreams. Instead, the life that you ought to live comes to you by way of the cross. A cross-shaped life is the life you ought to live. And that's what we're going to see this morning. True life. Joyful life. Fulfilling life. Abundant life comes to those who follow Jesus in the way of the cross. That's what we're going to see here in Mark chapter 8. So, hope you got your Bible out. We're not going to really read it all together. We're going to kind of take it bit by bit. And as we do, I kind of want to set the context for what Mike read for us. By this point in Jesus' ministry, he's been living with his disciples for a couple of years, walking around, traveling, preaching, teaching, healing people, casting out demons. And you can imagine how those guys just soaked it all up. Just to be with Jesus wherever he went. That was what they got to do. And as they watched and listened, they started to put two and two together. That Jesus might have been a carpenter from Nazareth, Joseph's son. Okay, yeah. But something bigger was going on here. God was somehow present with them when they were around Jesus. And so Jesus gets his disciples together uh, just a little bit before this in Mark chapter 8. And he asks them, All right, guys, who do people say that I am? And of course, they give the well-rounded answer, knowing that they've been listening to what people are saying about their master and trying to keep a good pulse on the culture and the society and the conversations. And they say, well, some say you are the prophet, Elijah. Maybe you're John the Baptist. And Jesus looks at them and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter stands up, spokesman for the disciples, and he says in verse 29 of chapter 8, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. It's become clear for them. This is more than a traveling rabbi, more than a miracle worker. This is the long-awaited Messiah come to establish his kingdom here on earth. And we can see it with our own eyes, evidence of the kingdom breaking in every time he opens his mouth and every time he heals someone. And it's at this point, this great moment of clarity, when they see for themselves who Jesus really is, that he throws them a curveball. We saw that curveball in verse 31. He said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed 
and after three days rise again. Wow. The disciples who've been watching Jesus, learning from Jesus, soaking up their encounters with Jesus, had no frame of reference for a suffering Messiah. Didn't fit with what they expected. They had a vision of the future. What's our future life going to be like? Well, we are, aren't we? Jesus' inner circle. And if he's the Messiah, that means when he goes into Jerusalem and kicks out the Romans and takes up the throne of his father David, we're going to be right there. And maybe, you know, John and James had the idea, maybe he'll even let us, his inner circle, sit at his right hand and his left hand in the kingdom. We'll have a place of honor and a place of privilege. That's their expectation for a future. The life they're going to live is a life of blessings in the presence of the Messiah. They had no way to expect, no way to even envision a Messiah who was going to suffer and die. But the deal is this, and I want you to hear this on this first Sunday of this new series. You need to see the centrality of the cross in the mission of Jesus. Disciples may not have had a frame of reference for understanding a crucified or suffering Messiah, but Jesus knew deep down within his soul that that's exactly who he was. That was the essence, the central portion of his ministry was the fact that he had been born to die. One of the commentators I leaned on this week in studying for this passage, R.T. France, talks about the way that Jesus must have relied on certain passages from the Old Testament to fill up his sense of calling, what God had called him specifically to do. And he said, without a doubt, the central passage in all the Old Testament that gave Jesus his understanding of his mission was Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. You, you may know it. Uh, you could turn there with me if you want. I'm going to talk about it here for a couple of seconds. But it's a passage that talks about God's servant who would come. He'd be revealed in a way that nobody expected. He wouldn't have anything about him that drew their attention to him. Uh, in fact, he'd be like the kind of person you, you try to not look at. Their appearance is so unsettling that you just rather turn your face away. I often think of the homeless person on the side of the road that you try to avoid eye contact because you know that they're going to ask you for money. That's kind of the idea. Somebody you don't want to look at in the eye because you're unsettled by their appearance. But the idea that Isaiah communicates in Isaiah 53 is that his unsettling appearance and his personal life of suffering was actually God's will. That God had sent him for this person. Isaiah says that we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This servant that Isaiah sees that God raises up is going to suffer and die for God's people. And get this, Jesus knew what Isaiah saw in verse 11 of Isaiah 53. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. The disciples may not have had a place in their messianic conception for a suffering Messiah, but Jesus did. In fact, he said in John chapter 10, uh, verse 17, I'm going to turn there too. This is pretty powerful. As he starts to talk about his relationship with God the Father, he says in verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. 
This commandment I received from my Father. See, the disciples totally caught off guard by a suffering Messiah. But Jesus knew deep within his soul that the cross was central to the mission that God had given him. That's why when Peter, again the spokesperson, takes Jesus aside, you can imagine the condescending hand on the shoulder, Jesus, we believe in you. We've seen the miracles you've performed. We've heard your teaching. We know that you are the Messiah, but we think you might be getting carried away here. The Bible says that Peter rebuked Jesus. Rebuked him. The, the actual word means to express strong disapproval in order to prevent something. He rebuked Jesus. No way, Lord, will we ever let you get crucified. No, Lord, no way, Lord, will we ever let you suffer. No way. God, this is not for you, Jesus. You're the Messiah. Nobody's going to reject you if we have anything to do about it. R.T. France says that Peter and Jesus have, and I like this phrase, incompatible ideologies. On the one hand, you have the idea of Peter and the disciples, of a conquering king rolling into Jerusalem on a war horse. And on the other hand, you have Jesus' personal sense of mission, that the cross is central. The Son of Man must suffer and die and be rejected by the chief priests, the scribes. Then he'll be buried, and he'll be right, 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 raised again on the third day. This is Jesus' idea. This is who he is. The cross is central to his mission. And so when Peter condescendingly rebukes him, no way, Lord, Jesus turns the tables. And he turns around and sees Peter there, the other disciples standing behind him, and Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, Get behind me, Satan. If you're not focused on God's purposes or God's interests, you're focused on man's. Disciples, no clue about a suffering Messiah. But the cross was central to Jesus' mission. So central that he would rebuke Peter and say, you're not actually sticking up for me. You think you're doing a good thing by saying I'll never suffer, I'll never die. But you are placing a satanic roadblock between me and my obedience to the Father. And we sometimes joke about this, you know, maybe your wife says you need to go on a diet, and you say, get behind me, Satan. I'm not going on a diet. I'm eating fried fish every Friday if I can get it. No, that's it's not a joke, right? We use it that way. But Jesus literally intended for Peter and the, and the, the rest of the disciples to understand that what they were doing was satanic. In fact, it was so satanic, it was almost the exact same words that he'd heard from Satan himself. Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted, fasting, seeking the Father's will for his life. In Luke chapter 4, verse 5, Satan came to him, and he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I'll give you all this domain and its glory, for it's been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall be yours. But Jesus answered him, It's written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, when, when Peter, thinking he was doing Jesus a favor, said, No way will this ever happen to you. He was making himself an ally of God's greatest enemy. He was offering to Jesus the same path to glory that Satan had done. A way to glory without the cross. A way to kingship without suffering. 
He was mimicking, parroting Satan's temptation. And so it was totally right for Jesus to say, get behind me, Satan. You're not focused on God's interests, but on man's. So you want to live a cross-shaped life? You want to find true life? It begins by understanding how central the cross was in the mission of Jesus. Because if you miss that, if you miss the idea of glory coming after suffering, you don't just miss who Jesus is and what his mission was all about, but you miss the function of the cross in your life. So we need to know the centrality of the cross and the mission of Jesus, and we also need to know the symbol of the cross for the disciples of Jesus. See, uh, when Jesus turns around after rebuking his disciples, he sees not just a few people, but, but a crowd of people. And I like what this communicates to us in verse 34, that there's not tears to faithful discipleship, and there's not real sold-out Christianity that's for Sunday school teachers and for deacons and for some pastors. And then there is just regular Christianity for the crowd, the rest of the people. But in Jesus' mind, there is one standard for faithful discipleship. And he defines it really clearly. In fact, it's like three phrases he uses to draw our attention into the one single idea. He says, if anybody wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You want to know what kind of life you should live? It's a cross-shaped life, a life that's defined by the example that Jesus set in his selfless sacrifice. He says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, this is a public invitation to the way of discipleship. Now, I know that Jesus traveled often, and sometimes the Bible lets us in on the crowds of people who followed, you know, thousands sometimes spread out on the grass that he multiplies food for. I like the way Mark talks about it when Jesus first comes into Capernaum, that the whole city gathers at the door because they hear that Jesus, the miracle worker, is there, and they all want to receive a touch from him. I like the way the crowd presses in on him so closely that he feels power drained from him when the woman touches the hem of his garment. Everywhere Jesus went, there was a crowd of people trying to press in and get closer. Draw me nearer, 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 precious Lord. And Jesus said, if that is your desire, if that's what you want, if you want to come after me, you want to follow me where I go, you want to stay where I stay, here's the standard that you got to meet. It's a public invitation to everyone who hears it, even you. And it's this. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Now this, this word deny is strange. Peter knows this word well. Later, Jesus is going to tell him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times for the rooster crows. No way, Lord. No way would I ever deny you. But he does. He denies him three times. In that sense, to deny somebody means to be to refuse to acknowledge it. So you deny it. John the Baptist denied that he was the Christ. He said, no, I'm not. Denied. So are we to refuse to acknowledge ourselves? There's, a, there's another shade of meaning. Maybe it's more helpful. It means to act in a holy, selfless manner. Deny yourself. Act in a holy, selfless manner. You know, I think in 2021... Maybe the original sin 
in culture and society is to deny your true self. What do y'all think? I mean, you think about this. I think the greatest virtue held up in 2021 is authenticity. Maybe it's communicated like this. You need to live your truth. Your truth, you live it out. Hey, you need to be true to yourself. Don't deny who you are and how you feel. Be true to yourself. And here is Jesus, a man who, I mean, I know some people would say that Jesus lived a long time ago, and so the things he has to say don't really apply to people living today. Our culture has changed so much. We've progressed beyond that first century stuff. But I believe in my heart, and I hope you do too, that there was no person who ever lived who had a better read of human beings than Jesus. And so when he speaks about what we ought to do or what we should do, we ought to listen. He says, if you see something in me, crowd, that you like, that you want more of, don't be true to yourself. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. And just so we get the picture, he uses an illustration. He gives us a, a clear picture of the self-denial he has in mind. Take up your cross. And why, why a cross? We've got one up here. We know you can identify Christians by the crosses they wear around their neck, the tattoos on their ankles. That's a really popular place for cross tattoos. You can identify people by their association to the cross. Do they wear it? But Jesus says the measure of Christian discipleship is not wearing a cross, but bearing a cross. Why the cross, though? What, what about the cross? Well, I think it it's tied up with the idea of the cross itself. Now, if you were going to create one of the worst ways to die, you'd arrive at something like the cross. The Romans had perfected it. It was uh, a way to crucify, to crucify someone. was a way to draw out their death, to make them suffer through it. Uh, it was humiliating. There you are naked for the whole world to see, heaving for every breath. And in doing that, the Romans thought that maybe if they made it like the worst possible way to die, uh, it would deter future criminals. That they'd see it and they'd say, hey, I'd rather die in a thousand other ways, but I don't want to die on a cross. It was intended to inflict shame on the crucified. And I think if we think about this shame, it, it brings together what Jesus says in verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, why is the cross the symbol Jesus intends to use when he illustrates a life of devoted discipleship, a holy, selfless way of living for Jesus? Why the cross in particular? Because it is the full exchange of everything that is sort of inbuilt into our character and into our nature. You and I are hardwired for self-preservation. So we have a biological and chemical thing that happens within us when we have danger, when we sense danger, the fight or flight response. Our bodies are created by God to react to harm in a specific way. 
You either puff your chest out, bow up, and get ready for a fight, or if you're like me, you, you tuck your tail and you run as fast as you can away from whatever the danger is. And that plays out in all kinds of different ways. I remember being a, a teenager, an awkward middle schooler, and having this sense that everybody was always looking at me. Everybody was always talking about me. I was totally self-centered and always aware of what people were saying and thinking. So as a result, we create these defense mechanisms, right? Things that try to protect us against insecurities. We lie. Man, I told some whoppers in my day because I wanted people to think certain things about me. Or we'll expend our energy trying to prove the world that we're not what we think everybody might think we actually are. We try to, you know, pad our resumes. We try to gain reputation and wealth. All of this to try to shore up within ourselves this deep-seated feeling of inadequacy. And, of course, that plays out in our relationships with God. We think that we have to somehow commend ourselves to Him, that if we just demonstrate to Him how much we love Him and how much good we have done for Him, then He'll finally accept us. But Jesus says, you really want to come after me. You really want to be with me where I go. You want to experience a blessed life, a fulfilling life, an abundant life. Give it all up. Live wholly selfless. Not concerned about what other people say, about what other people do, but gladly bear the shame, bear the reproach of the cross. Be identified with me no matter the cost, and that's when you will find true life. You see, it's all based on this calculation. He identifies in verse 35 and 36. You don't have to be a math whiz to get it. He says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? This is the exchange we're talking about here. You and I are hardwired to live self-centeredly. Like we are the center of our own world and of God's own world. That everything exists to bring us joy and happiness. But Jesus says... The worst thing that could happen to you is that you live your life that way, pursuing all your hopes and dreams, plans and aspirations, gaining reputation for yourself, and you actually get it. That you set yourself to pursue your vision of life. And you succeed. And he's not there. The worst thing that could happen to a person is to gain the whole world and to lose their soul. I was thinking about a way I could illustrate this for you without a giant cross. And, and one of these days that was going to happen. Um, but I was thinking about it. And I was talking to Mike. If you imagine that your post-COVID life, the vacations you want to take, the house projects that you've been putting off, but you're getting the stimulus check, and so maybe you're going to finally get to do it. You know, you take all of that and you put it in a box. You carry that a box around with you everywhere. It's, you're, you're clinging to it with everything you've got. And then Jesus shows up, and he's got another box. And on his box it says, glorious, everlasting life. 
with me. And he comes to you, he sees your box. It's obvious from his perspective that you're proud of it, that your whole energy and life is aimed towards achieving it. And he says to you, here, I want to give you something. Receive from me everlasting and glorious life. And here you are awkwardly hanging on to your dreams and your aspirations, not having any extra hands to take from him what he wants to give you. So if, if you want to receive the everlasting life that Jesus has on offer, what do you have to do? You've got to put down your box and take up his. And that's what he's saying. If anybody desires to come after me, let him deny himself, let her deny herself, take up her cross and follow me. Listen, so many of our lives are, are marked by the pursuit of pleasure, popularity, luxury, comfort, success, love, health, beauty, power. And here we are in our box, thinking that the life I want to live is wrapped up in finally getting those things. But Jesus' invitation is give them up. True life is not found in achieving your dreams, but in following Jesus in the way of the cross. So what are your post-COVID plans? What kind of life are you going to live? You know, maybe you could envision yourself in a dusty road, a grassy field, first century Palestine, and there's Jesus looking you dead in the eye. And inviting you to the same thing he invited that crowd to that day. If anybody desires to come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. In that case, what would you need to put down? What hopes and dreams? And I remember in college reading the story of Jim Elliott. You may know of him and his wife Elizabeth Elliott. But he was really a successful guy, he had kind of excelled in high school, one of these driven guys, goes off to college in Illinois and is studying really hard. He's driven by kind of an abnormal passion, not typical of college students, very uh, sort of angsty like we can be in our late teens and early 20s, trying to figure out what God wants from him in his life. And he gets it in his mind that rather than becoming a successful businessman or a pastor or even a Bible translator, that he's going to spend his life taking the gospel to people who'd never heard it before. And so he wrote one night in his journal while at Wheaton College, Chicago, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That was his personal motto. Not many years later, after he's married, he and his team end up going to the jungles of Ecuador to reach out to a tribe that had never heard of Jesus before. Their plan was to sort of embed in the jungle, to interact with the tribe, to learn their language so that they could communicate the message of Jesus with them. Their first interactions seemed to go okay, but one day the tribesmen come to the missionary group and kill them on the spot. What leads a person to forfeit a life full of potential, 
success, a beautiful wife and a family? What compels them to go to Ecuador and put their life on the line for Jesus? Nothing but the conviction that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I didn't have the same kind of experience, but one that's sort of parallel. I had a vision of my life when I was in college. Thought I was going to grow up and be an economics professor at a college. And I was going to wear tweed jackets <laughs> and sit in my office and talk about philosophy with students or something. Had it all planned out. And one day, sitting in my macroeconomics class, my freshman year of college, Jesus put his arm around me. He said, what are you doing with your life? And I don't know if you've ever experienced that. But in a moment, all my hopes and dreams, my aspirations, my plans, no longer matter at all. In that moment, I had discovered true life was found in Jesus, following Jesus in the way of the cross. That I'd be willing to give up my plans and my dreams to know Jesus more. That I'll be willing to go wherever he wants me to go. Do whatever he wants me to do if it means knowing Jesus more. A person who experiences the life Jesus is talking about, sure, they acknowledge their desires. It's not ignoring yourself. But they say to God, just like Jesus did, not my will, but thy will be done. The person who experiences the true life that we're talking about this morning is a person who's willing to suffer the loss of privilege, advantage, reputation, and comfort for the sake of finding true life in Christ. We start this sermon series, A Cross-Shaped Life. I want to be really clear with y'all. COVID has been a terrible thing for so many people. But, this may be your last chance to change your life. Before COVID, maybe you were going through the motions. You had your life planned out, mapped out. You knew what you were going to do this year, next year. You had trips on the calendar, whatever. And God threw a giant roadblock in your path. And here we are on the cusp of whatever comes next. And you're probably making your plans of what you're going to do this summer and fall, like I'm doing for our church and for my family. But what if it's this moment right here, this is your last chance, to not just slip back into the routine, the humdrum of life. What if this is your opportunity? What if Jesus is saying to you right now, if anyone desires to come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. What if this is the moment, church? When the life that you had planned didn't pan out this year. And the life you had planned is not the life that God has planned for you. What if he has something even better in store? Well, I think he does. All that remains is for you to hear his invitation. If anyone desires to come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Can you put it down? and take up that symbol of wholehearted devotion to Jesus? Can you follow Him wherever He goes? Do whatever He does? Are you willing to have a cross-shaped life? 
I hope you are. Will you pray with me?